This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It's Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. New York Attorney General Letitia James has filed a civil lawsuit against former President Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, and three of his adult children, you know which three, not Tiffany, for fraud and misrepresentation of assets. It's 200-page or so filing. You could read it. I did, or most of it gets a little repetitive. As we go one golf course, they go all, oh, think about the assets. Think about all the buildings we could build. Well, actually, you're not allowed to build so many. Think about all the buildings we could build. Think about the value of the Trump name. Actually, it's not so valuable. It's right here. No, 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 extremely valuable. Or look at 40 Park Avenue. We could sell those apartments for, I don't know, they're worth $20 million. Actually, they're rent controlled and they're worth about 750. No, no, no. Shush, 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 shush. And... Letitia James and the people shall be shushed no more. They really do seem to have him dead to rights on asset inflation and gap violations, the generally accepted accounting principles. Gap. I ask you what facet of life does Donald Trump adhere to the generally accepted principles of? He uh, violates GANOP, which is generally accepted not lying principles, and uh, GADOP, which is generally accepted discourage insurrection principles. Also, GARTPOTSP, which refers to generally accepted referring to penis on debate stage principles. So he inflated the assets, all the land around the golf course, all the value of his buildings, He brought those to lenders. Lenders said, sure, we'll give them to you at a good rate based on these attestations of their value, which were, in fact, not as valuable as he said. But here's the thing. No one's really harmed. The lending parties got paid back at 10% interest. There were references to that was the best interest, it seemed, that they got. However, we must note that, A, you're not allowed to do it. And there's a reason you're not allowed. It's not just a technicality. The entire system is that attestations and financial documents that are sweared to as being accurate do need to be accurate. They, in fact, need to be accurate. The system depends on that. Letitia James is looking for a large fine. She's looking to ban Donald Trump from owning a New York State-based business. And she has made a referral to the SDNY. I don't know if they'll take it. I kind of doubt it. It seems more like the realm, all these violations that are documented, seem more to belong to the realm of liable for dishonesty, not jailable for felony. And without jail time, don't expect Donald Trump to adhere to any generally accepted principles. And we already know he's violating Gakko Mabak, 
which is, of course, generally accepted claims of martyrdom after being caught. On the show today, I've got something unusual for you. As you know, we owe you the second half of the interview with Susan Rogers, author of This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You, and we shall bring you that. But I did an interview yesterday as Vladimir Putin was talking with a big Vladimir Putin expert, and I wanted to bring you that interview right now. So today's show won't be an interview and a spiel. It will be two interviews. If you want to think of one as the spiel, you do you. So, Vladimir Putin did announce a general mobilization yesterday, one stop short of a draft to fuel his rickety war effort in Ukraine. Additionally, the four Ukrainian regions that are occupied by Russia are going to hold votes on annexation, and this will give them some rhetorical claim to legitimacy, a claim that will be rejected by almost all the world. And of course, making a claim to a territory is contentious when your army doesn't hold that territory, which is the case in Ukraine. It's a signal that the best Putin can hope for is consolidating gains, not expanding further. But what can Putin hope for? What does he wish for? Where is he going? There is no one better to ask than my first guest, Angela Stent, longtime Putin observer, and in fact, sometime Putin dining companion. She is the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West, and with the rest, she is up next. Ukraine's recent lightning strike on Kharkiv was surprising and quite successful. They liberated a reported 3,000 square miles that had been occupied by Russia since the Kremlin launched its offensive in April. It was well-planned, well-manned, well-organized, well-equipped, or maybe we could look at the Russians as being at least comparatively poorly equipped, unorganized, deficiently manned. To talk about where this is going, what this means, and of course, the man at the center of it, Vladimir Putin, is Angela Stent. You can't ask for a better expert than the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest, with new materials for the ebook. And I should just say, if there is a Russia credential, Professor Stent Hadich is professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown, director for their Center for Eurasian, Russian, East Asian Studies Department, a fellow at Brookings, National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the NIC from 99 to 2001. She served the Office of Planning for the U.S. State Department and has met Vladimir Putin how many times would you say? 16. 16. What was the most recent? So the most recent was um, in 2019. So these are annual conferences that they started in 2004. Uh, and already at that 2019 meeting, he was, you know, very, very critical of the West, as he usually is. But you saw the other side of it for the first time at this meeting where they have foreign experts on Russia. They had a whole contingent from Africa uh, because this was part of Russia's return to Africa. So the emphasis really being then on the global south. And of course, we've seen that since the war broke out, that uh, the countries in the global south haven't condemned 
or sanctioned Russia. So that was really a lasting impression on me when I came away from that. Yeah, it seems to me that if it weren't for the foray into Ukraine, Russia, Russia's foreign policy had been doing pretty well, judged by the goals of Putin. And in fact, their economic policy, including recession-proofing the nation, I mean, the global recession has been in part because of the war, but in small part, mostly because of coronavirus and the supply chain. It would seem, you tell me, but if he hadn't made the war of choice that he did, Russia would be sitting pretty right now. Well, it certainly would. I mean, if his goal has been to restore Russia as a great power and to have a seat at the International Board of Directors on all important issues, he'd achieved that before this war began. Um, and uh, his position in, in power was strong. The US and Europe had had a lot of problems, obviously, during the Trump era. There were lots of tensions. Um, and, uh, you know, suddenly, what do we have? Uh, we have a US and Europe united as they've never been, really, for many decades by this. We have Finland and Sweden, you know, Sweden neutral for over 200 years, about to join NATO, uh, if Turkey allows them to. Uh, you know, NATO enlargement, the thing that he was uh, railing against now happening with, with two new members. Uh, you, you have Ukraine where you had really a split identity there, much more united by Russia. So he's produced just the opposite of many things he wanted. And Russia right now being deglobalized, you know, not part of the global economy in a way it was before. So uh, you do you do have to wonder what it was that he wanted to achieve. He wanted to conquer Ukraine and he thought he would do it in three days. I'll add to that. It seems like his Syria intervention worked out well or pretty well yeah. for Russia. He was achieving his goals via the Wagner Group in places mm -hmm. like Central Africa. Finland, you just mentioned. I mean, the word you probably taught your students, Finlandization, <laughs> an eponymous word meaning essentially not doing anything to upset the their more dominant neighbor, but Finlandization right. doesn't mean that now. He drove Finland away from the policy of Finlandization. Yeah, he definitely did. And as you said, he had successfully returned Russia to the Middle East uh, since 2015, making all kinds of new you know, partners there. Everyone in the Middle East on all sides of every dispute talks to him. He made all these inroads in Africa uh, and in Latin America too. So, uh, you know, not that he's jeopardized that yet with this war in Ukraine, but he's certainly jeopardize Russian standing in the world. He doesn't get to that status by accident. He had a strategy. He executed the strategy. He was untethered by what we might consider morality. But then comes his decision to go into Ukraine, which experts such as yourself were sort of flummoxed by. And the explanation, I guess the most uh, plausible explanation I've heard is COVID really affected him. He really uh, felt isolated and he began began acting in ways that were at least inconsistent with the Putin you knew from 2019 and before. Is that what you saw? Yeah, I mean, I think one would say about Putin that he was very pragmatic before and he didn't take excessive risks. So in 2008, they could have, in the war with Georgia, they could have gone to the capital, Tbilisi. They could have ousted the president, Saakashvili, whom they hated. They didn't do that. They recognized two uh, units there as being independent. Same thing in 2014. You annex Crimea bloodlessly, and then you start this war in the Donbass region, but they didn't continue it. There was then a ceasefire and more or less a stalemate there. So 
as far as we know, he was very isolated during the COVID period. He was just talking to a few of people who were close to him. They were reinforcing his views. And I have to say, he was getting very bad information on the situation in Ukraine. Uh, the FSB, which is the domestic intelligence agency, they were responsible for recruiting agents and informing on what was happening in Ukraine. And they clearly didn't understand uh, that there wasn't a large number of Ukrainians who were just waiting there to welcome the Russians back with open arms. So the question is, if we have shown that the intelligence was flawed going in, does he have the capacity now to A, get better intelligence and B, listen to it? So I don't know if he can get better intelligence, but what's happening right now uh, as we speak is that the Russians have uh, announced that they're going to have referenda in the Donbass region and in other occupied cities, including Kherson in the south, which the Ukrainians are trying to recapture. In the next week, they're going to have these referenda, and then presumably they will announce that 95% of the people voted to join Russia. So that's a real escalation, because that means if then the Ukrainians push back in those areas, the Russians will say, ah, you're attacking Russia proper. And they'll say the same thing to the United States. You know, you said your weapons wouldn't be used to attack Russia proper. Well, they are now. So what, what he is doing is, I don't think he understands the situation in Ukraine that much better, but they're using this kind of escalation Plus, the Russian parliament today, as we speak, passed laws to in, in, enable general mobilization, if that's the road that, that the Putin's going to go down. And we see all of this retaliation now attacking Ukrainian infrastructure. Uh, another nuclear power plant that was attacked, uh, dams, uh, hydroelectric stations, things like that. So that's what they're doing, is, is using all of these means to retaliate. We always knew that these were chits he had to play, general mobilization and the referendum. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, trust the results of that vote more than I would a Saddam Hussein election. But the thinking was, I think, that were he to pull those levers, it would be a sign of desperation, right? Well, you know, they've done very badly, as you said. I mean, the conduct of the Russian troops, they dropped everything they fled. The intercepted phone calls that we can hear of the soldiers complaining bitterly about, you know, there's no command, there was no structure, there was no instructions. And then we've just had Putin come back from a meeting in Uzbekistan and Samarkand with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a group of states that have good relations with Russia, and essentially have the Indian Prime Minister Modi say to him, chide him publicly in front of everyone, there shouldn't be a war, and I told you so on the phone. And even the Chinese, Putin himself saying publicly, we know that China has concerns about Ukraine, and Xi Jinping saying absolutely nothing about Ukraine, not mentioning it um, in his public discussion. So I think Putin has also come back from that, realizing these Central Asian countries, and then India, Pakistan, Iran that was at the meeting is now going to join. Uh, those countries are also looking askance at what's happening um, and wondering, you know, whether Putin has the wherewithal to carry this off. How important is turning around mass opinion? I mean, Russia could lose the war and lose every battle and still, I think, retain general popularity for the war. Um, so will for this war to end and Russia to quote unquote lose, will the Russian public had to have turned against it? 
I think so. I mean, I think what we have right now are public opinion polls that show that about 50% of the Russian population have just tuned out. They don't pay any attention to the war. They don't want to know about it. They're going, and in the big cities, certainly they're going about their lives just as they have before. Maybe there are fewer Western products they can buy in the stores. So the, as you said, they've been sending up till now these young men from these benighted poor areas of Russia. Many of them are not ethnic Russians to fight there. They get a salary while they're in the army. And if they are killed, their parents get financial compensation. If they start mobilizing the urban youth. See, today, it's also interesting, the Duma has just published very stringent laws about what to do with people, draft dodging, you know, evasion, uh, desertion. Why did they do that? Because that's obviously going on on a scale that we're probably not fully aware of. Um, but if they try and mobilize these young men, there will be more resistance to fighting in the war. This is not a cause that most Russians necessarily actively believe in. They may passively not fight against it because they can go to jail for that. So I do think that turning around public opinion would be an important way that the war might have to wind down. And I think if they do now go ahead and do the general mobilization, it's going to be much more difficult for them uh, to keep this war going. Recently, uh, many dozen local officials voiced their displeasure with Vladimir Putin. They didn't say because of the war in their official decree. I think that would have subjected them to criminal charges, but they did call on him to resign. I was shocked by this. Why would they feel safe enough to do that? Well, because I think they believe that, you know, particularly, and this is all around the time of the Russian reverses, that maybe there was a window of opportunity there for people to get together and say, you know, if this war is going so badly, we should maybe really rethink it. But it was very courageous of them. I'm not sure what will happen to them. Uh, 400,000 Russians have left Russia since the war began. And these are all people who oppose it. Uh, and so the ones that have stayed and speak out like that, they're risking their freedom. Um, but they, they obviously, you have more of a debate now publicly in Russia since in the last two weeks, really, uh, you know, on some of these <laughs> evening talk shows where people say very extreme things. So you have some people arguing, we've got to be tougher. I mean, this is, and this is what you see playing out, I think, today in these new measures, we've got to be tougher. Uh, we've got to push back more. But you do have some people saying, maybe it's time to think about withdrawing from this and, and having a peace agreement with the Ukrainians. But the impression I'm getting from you is that Russian public opinion will be very important. It's certainly a lagging indicator. The measurements of Russian public opinion are good enough so that we could understand what they're really thinking. And that is something to watch. It can, I maybe thought it was immobile, but it can move and events can have an effect, you're saying. Yeah, it can have an effect, but I think still kind of what happens in this war in the in the immediate next, you know, few weeks has much more to do with what's happening, you know, in the Kremlin or at the elite level, less than public opinion. I mean, you have these debates going on, but it takes time for them to, to percolate up or have any influence. So it's still going to be determined by Putin and by the few people around him whom he talks to and the even fewer people whom he listens to. Before the uh, incursion that we're talking about, so maybe from day, the first hundred days of the war, uh, the uh, attempts to decapitate Kiev didn't go well. It was seen that the Ukrainians were bravely standing up for themselves and the Western alliance was united behind them. The next hundred days, towards the end of it, there were maybe some signs that not all of the, the Western alliance was still allied, but to what extent, and they definitely needed energy. And then in the last few days, this military success, I think, has re-energized, I use the term advisedly, everyone. But is that enough to overcome 
you know, cold European winters. I think we uh, we can't definitively say it is. I mean, a few weeks ago, you had major protests in Prague and people were saying, you know, gasoline costs too much. There's inflation. Why do we have these sanctions? Let's rethink this. The Hungarians have already done it. We have to watch the Italian election coming up uh, because the person who will be prime minister now, she herself has said that she supports Ukraine. But the coalition of right wing parties that will probably come to power there, you have a number of people, including, of course, Silvio Berlusconi, um, who are friends to Putin, uh, Matteo Salvini, people like that. Uh, and if Italy were to break ranks, you know, that would really be quite serious. Uh, in Germany, 70% of the population still supports uh, supporting Ukraine. 30% doesn't. So at the moment, m- most of Europe is holding strong. And the more reports of these atrocities come out and the more people see Ukrainian success, they may support it. But, you know, we're not, we're only at the beginning of what could be a much more difficult winter. Um, so I think it's, it, and this is, of course, what Putin's hoping for. It's too early to say that, you know, we've now uh, reunited everybody. Yeah, well, Georgia, Georgia Maloney is uh, a semi-fascist, to borrow a phrase, and Viktor Orban of Hungary is certainly of that ilk. Uh, maybe Czechless, maybe the Czech Republic surprised me a little bit, but I think Putin will have to make bigger inroads with the actual democracies and democratic countries to really worry. Though, you know, Italy is forget what their leadership is, and even to some extent where their population sympathy lie. They're just a big customer, and that's important. Energy, you know, the energy and, and, and trade in general, economic relations, very important with Russia, important for Italy, important for, for Russia too, even though some of those obviously have been broken up. But so far, you know, the, the, the publics in France and Germany and Britain, and then of course in Poland and the Baltic states are still very strongly behind this effort to help the Ukrainians win. I'm certainly fascinated by all the diplomacy and getting inside Putin's mind, but Recently, I've been saying to myself, you know, I would maybe trade all that inside for another 20 HIMAR missile units in Ukraine. It does seem that military might and the ability to win battles really eclipses all other considerations in forecasting where this war is going. Would you agree with that? Sure does. I mean, I think we've been reminded again, the hard power is what counts. You know, all the people who write about soft power. Yeah, that's fine. But in a war. Yeah. And, you know, uh, if the if as long as we can supply the Ukrainians and particularly we, the United States with these weapons um, and maybe even with more possibly with tanks as well, but the HIMARS are very important. They can continue to successfully push back against the Russians. If we stop doing that, um, if there's a reevaluation of this after the midterms, for instance, then that'll make it much more difficult for the Ukrainians to prevail. And even though they're also getting weapons from Britain and other NATO members, Poland, um, it's, you know, we, the US, dominate this. So it's really, we will keep this enabled to keep the Ukrainians uh, fighting back against the Russians as long as we supply them the weapons. U.S. funding is the most important. Is U.S. leadership the most morally important for, or, uh, you know, we're talking about European nations. Are they really following our lead? Yeah. I mean, I think this war is, again, re-emphasized that, you know, the Europeans depend on the United States for their security. Without the United States protection, they're pretty vulnerable against a country like Russia. So, you know, we come out of this with NATO having reasserted itself, found a, a new purpose, 
after the Afghan debacle and the new purpose is the old purpose. It's containing Russia uh, and, and, and making sure that it doesn't make any more inroads. So I think it's reinforced that however unpalatable it is for the Europeans, they realize that they cannot protect their security from a country like Russia without the United States. What would losing look like for Putin? He's never really lost. He's right. right? He's stopped. <laughs> I mean, I guess he's voluntarily uh, decided not to press on in some cases, but he's never really lost. So how might that go? How might that play out in his mind and on the battlefield? Well, indeed, he hasn't lost. So the only way that he could get out of this, I guess, and still stay in power would be sort of to declare victory. And he's been changing his goalposts as the war has been has gone on. Now he has said the main thing is, you know, they want to control all of the Donbass. So, you know, if they had these referenda, um, he could declare victory. Uh, he could say, well, we control the Donbass. That's what we were going to do. And, um, you know, Ukraine will have lost a, a significant part of its territory, 20% of its territory, if, if that were to happen. But of course, that's very far away from what he said he was going to do at the beginning of the war, um, which is to reunite Ukraine and Russia, uh, you know, to take Kiev in three days. But, you know, who, who's going to call him out on that? the people in his own country who think that Russia should be doing more. Uh, but right now they don't have the upper hand. But we really we really don't know. We've never seen a Putin who is to cope with that kind of loss. And the only way I think he can do it is to portray it as a victory. If he does that, if he says, we got the Donbass, who sues who for peace? Well, I mean, then if he said, we, you know, we've got the Donbass, then and then he would say, well, we, you know, we'll sit down with the Ukrainians. Now, are the Ukrainians going to do that? And that's very questionable because 90 percent of Ukrainians say we have to get the Russians completely out of Ukraine, not just out of where they've become since February the 24th. Uh, I, I don't think it would be very hard for President Zelensky to remain in office if he were to agree to something like that. So that that's the difficulty, too, um, that, you know, the, it, it, let's say Putin were prepared to do this, although, you know, I'm still very skeptical about that. Uh, at this point, I'm not sure the Ukrainians would be. Can a Ukrainian counteroffensive be so successful that it pushes Putin towards the nuclear option? I mean, it's the so if nuclear option, we're presumably talking about the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. I hope so. We're not I, talking about the use <laughs> right. of a nuclear of a strategic nuclear weapon that can hit the United States. Um, you know, it's possible. What you have to think about is what does that get Putin? It doesn't really get him any more territory. It gets radiation that would not only impact Ukraine but would impact Russia as well. And he's crossed a he's crossed a line. He's broken a taboo. Right since 1945, nobody has used nuclear weapons. Now, maybe much of the rest of the world would shrug that off, just as much of the global South has said this is a European conflict that doesn't have anything to do with us. Um, but um, it, um, you know, he, we we can't rule out that he won't do it. And obviously, the Biden administration administration is now signaling that they think it's possible that he would do it. Um, and there obviously are people in Europe and other parts of the world who believe that too. Well, I guess the concern with the rhetorical question, what does that get Putin, is that the answer up until, say, 2021 was always yes, and Putin would recognize that. But knowing him as you do, do you still have faith that he would read the situation 
uh, as you are, as reality dictates. So I'm not completely sure about that anymore. Um, You're you less know, sure than you once were. I'm less sure than I once was. I mean, there is this issue about, could he do this on his own? Who else would have to sign off on this? And that's a little bit murky. Uh, but presumably there are others that, that might have some say in this. But whether they would be a re, you know, restricting or limiting that, we're not sure. Angela Stent is a Georgetown professor, a Brookings senior fellow, and the author most recently of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest, new ebook, portions of which are forthwith. Thank you so much, Professor Stent. Thank you. Yesterday, we spoke with Susan Rogers. This is what it sounds like, what the music you love says about you. And in the book, she writes of realism and authenticity and how music now doesn't even seek to convince the listener that say what you're hearing is a band in a studio playing instruments, which is fine, which is cool, but it is different than what's come before. And I have noticed and asked Susan about this, that if you look at film, the top grossing films, the top 15 films, all but two or three have fantastical elements, wizards, spaceships, superheroes, singing lions, dinosaurs in the modern age. There are exceptions, Titanic. The new Top Gun, by the way, is an exception. Fast and the Furious 7. It's only because it's not adjusted for inflation. But anyway, we expect this in movies, even though movies have told human stories as far and as long as they've been invented. But we specifically go to the movies to get these fantastic, unrealistic visual elements that can't be gotten elsewhere. And I wondered, is music, is recorded music becoming something of a fantastical delivery system as well? Yes, there was a revolution in music, and it happened about 25 years ago. It's a similar revolution to what happened in with the advent of the camera in uh, the 1840s. So prior to uh, the invention of the camera, painters had to paint reality. So if you wanted a, a picture of your family, you had to hire a painter and spend a few weeks capturing, here's what you and the rest of your family look like. And as soon as the camera came along, instantaneously, practically speaking, y you've got an image of your family. Um, the same thing happened with the invention of the digital audio workstation in music. When, when Pro Tools and the laptop-based recording came along in the 1990s, all of a sudden, my competition, Young Engineers, could pull up a perfect kick drum. Mm. with just the click of a mouse. Now, for engineers of my generation, do you know how hard it was to get a perfect kick drum? I mean, you right. had to have you had to have microphone a position oh, and the yeah. actual quality of the instrument itself. Now, you not just a perfect kick drum can be pulled up. It's the same one, right? It's the <laughs> same. So, yeah. what that did is that allowed record makers of today to work, as we say, from the vision to the materials. So in my generation, you had to work from the materials to the vision, which meant that uh, the record you made was constrained by how much money you had, your budget. It was constrained by the instruments you could get your hands on, the studio, the players you could get your hands on. There was only so much you could do. You didn't have the capacity to 
just instantly change the pitch or the timing of a performance. That singer had to stay in that booth until you had a great vocal. That's just how it was, or a great guitar solo or whatever. So today, the ones who are going to rule the entertainment universe are the ones with the best vision, not necessarily the ones with the with the most money and the and the greatest materials. The challenge used to be to take out the imperfections or enough of the imperfections that you chose to take out to achieve some level of perfection or flawlessness. Now, if the default is flawlessness, there becomes this new challenge or question where to embrace the imperfections. That's a different way of thinking about it that crafters of music have ever, or you know, before 25 years ago, had ever been faced with, right? Yeah, it's it's um it's a little bit puzzling to me i um in my generation those of us who worked with analog we uh we we knew how hard it was to get that excellent performance when i see young people at berkeley and they describe their sessions to me, they basically just record at once, send the musicians and even the singer home, and then they spend the rest of the time editing to take an imperfect performance and make it sound perfect. When the listener listens to something that's been massaged like that, the listener isn't hearing what actually happened in the studio. I think there probably is, they tell me, that there is a backlash these days. And now young people more than ever before are starting to really crave a little bit of a little bit of mistake, a little mm-hmm. bit of dirt. Uh, as Tommy Jordan from Gagital always says, music is an expression of life, and life isn't perfect. Life smells sweet and it stinks. Life is simple and it's complex. Life is dirty and it's clean. So music should have some dirt in it. It should stink as well as smell sweet. Yeah. And there's that, which is the Ariana Grande song where... They, they're great at taking out her breaths, you know? We don't have to be subject to mm-hmm. listening to Ariana Grande's breaths, but then we have a song without breaths and it makes right. you anxious. Which one is that? Uh, Seven Rings is the one I was talking yeah. about. Breakfast yeah. Tiffany's and bottles of bubbles Girls with tattoos who like getting in trouble Lashes and diamonds, ATM machines I myself all of my favorite things Been through some bad shit, I should be a savage Who would have thought it turned me to a savage Rather be tied up with calls and my strings Write my own checks like I'm able to sing the, the great producer David Kahn visited Berkeley a few years back, and he pointed that out in a class. He said, you know, when you guys with your digital audio workstations, when you're editing out the breaths, what do you think is happening in your listener? When your listener is listening to a singer belt out a line and then not breathe afterward, what happens to you when you don't hear breathing? You clench. It feels like you're drowning. Leave the breaths in. I'll and you, you, I'll interrupt and say you contrast mm. that with this great Regina Spector song. Yes. I loved you first. I loved you first. You know, you listen to Regina Spector, there's a woman at a piano. You can picture the piano. Mm. You can picture her her lungs working in and out.
it's, uh, well, it's the experience she wants to craft, and she does it well. Yeah, so the the great hardcore band Dillinger Escape Plan came and visited Berkeley (laughs) a few years back. It was just Liam and Billy, drummer and bass player, and they were on stage conducting a clinic. And um, the drummer, Billy is drummer, was talking about uh, how he controls his breathing before he does a blast beat. So he... He'll take an inhale and then he'll exhale on that blast beat. So it goes on the snare. And he's about to go into a, a new section. So he exhales into his arm as he's playing the snare. And as he said that, I uh, thought of something. So I went ahead and asked in front of all the students. I wanted them to hear his answer. And I said, Billy, because you've trained yourself to get your timing exactly the way you want it, synchronized to your breath, what would you say to an engineer who would edit your drum hits so that they fell perfectly on the grid? And I remember he looked over at Liam and he looked back at us and he said, we'd never work with an engineer like that. Right. Yes. My <laughs> point exactly, kids, that these expert musicians have trained to put these gestures exactly where they want them to go. Keep your little grubby paws off of the computer mouse and don't be moving that stuff around. Uh, you're ruining someone's natural performance gestures. Yeah. Oh, and as far as perfection, is it the Crosby, Sills & Nash song 420, which... Mm. Uh, which- has a mistake that they kept in on purpose? Yeah, 4 and 20. I was uh, maybe 13 years old or so when that came out, and I just loved it. Oh, Stephen Stills sings, I embrace, and then he, he, he his throat catches. I embrace, and he kind of gulps the many-colored beast. I embrace the many-colored beast. Graham Nash told me that they wanted to take, Stephen wanted to redo it, and Nash said, no, 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 it was perfect. That's the kind of performance gesture I value. Um, On that dimension of realism versus abstraction, while I'm arguing on all of the dimensions of music, we all have a sweet spot. We all have something that we prefer. Personally, I like hearing human mistakes because my favorite visual fantasy, when I'm listening to music and I go into my own head, my favorite thing to imagine is imagining the performers in front of me. I think that's why I was born to be a recording engineer, because I love visualizing the studio. Turns out that only about 10 or 11% of music listeners choose that as their favorite visualization. Most listeners, when they listen to music, experience autobiographical memories. When they listen to a record, they're seeing people and places and events in their own life. And that's why they love the music that they love. Is it for reasons of nostalgia? It brings up pleasant memories. Other people, around 19%, like to create a story from the lyrics. And it may or may not involve the artist who's singing. It may or may not involve themselves. Some people don't want to see people at all in their mind's eye. They want to see outer space and science fiction scenes and different planets and abstract shapes and colors, and they tend to favor (laughs) electronic music. They tend to surround me the one time I went to a Grateful Dead concert, I think. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I'm of the ilk that, uh, surprising for what I do, I picture myself either performing the music, which yes. I can't do, or more likely, you recommended some Daft Punk songs or referenced them, and I immediately went to, ooh, if I was doing a live show, here's how mm. I would utilize this. So I'm creating the music or presenting it to an audience. And that's a pretty small percentage too, right? Yeah, it is. That's our happy place. So uh-huh. when we are listening to music that we really enjoy, we activate the default network, which is a network of brain structures that's associated with our self-identity, our self-awareness and self-consciousness. Essentially, we go into our own heads. That's a good thing. When you go into your own heads, your own head, you're going to start fantasizing. And your brain is going to, I think of it like a dog at the dog park. It's going to go where its treats are found. Some dogs at the dog park, they socialize with other dogs. Some will go off sniffing the trees or the shrubbery and other dogs just like to stay close to people. All of us go when we're free. We go where we can go. When our brain is free, it goes to what it likes. If we pay attention to what it is we like, those fantasies that we go to over and over again tells us quite a lot about who we are and what we most deeply desire. Have you seen that video where young kids, maybe 15, 16, listen to uh, In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins for the first time? <laughs> I've seen that, yeah. Come on, you ain't got that cold. Hey, that was cold. I got to download this to my phone. That was cold, how you did that? I ain't gonna lie, man. I ain't never seen nobody drop a beat three minutes in a song. It's so good. And and they start going nuts that three minutes in, he dropped the beat. I probably, like you, have listened to Phil Collins hundreds of times. I never thought of it in terms of dropping the beat, but they're right in a way, aren't they? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> their, their reaction is so priceless. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? We're watching this video. We don't know if it's staged or not, or if this is the first take or the 15th take. Let's assume that it's the first take and that this is genuine. Uh, it's it's a marvelous thing when you're um, getting to experience someone else experiencing music for the first time. Uh, most of the time, it's just like, yeah, this is okay, but not great. But when a song just wipes you out or startles you or it gives you a strong reaction the first time you hear it. It's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. So I'm sure you saw the uh, Peter Jackson Apple Beatles documentary. And my question is, when Paul McCartney is there playing the riff for Get Back and then Get Back, the idea becomes Get Back, the song. I mean, to me, it was amazing. It was Almost religious, right? Alchemy, I couldn't believe it. But to you, someone who has often been there at the moment of creation, was it less transcendental than maybe mm. it was to someone like me? Well, those moments are beautiful when you, when you, when you witness that firsthand. We come on this loop, John B. In uh, around 2004, I was an undergrad at the University of Minnesota. And Brian Wilson was on tour, and he played Northrop Auditorium Pet Sounds and did the full, full album. And at one point, between sides, he needed to retune his bass. I was sitting up pretty close, and Brian Wilson is there, and he's tuning his bass, and after he tuned it, he checked the tuning and he played a sequence of notes, and I watched it happen. I thought, 
He just went into his own head right there. I could see it in his face. He played the sequence of notes, and he played it again, and he made a little variation on it. And he kind of started to take it to another place. And suddenly he looked up, and he looked at the audience, and he said, Oh, did I just play that out loud? Bamo, <laughs> bamo. That's that moment where an instrument, or rather a player has an instrument in their hands, and suddenly... They go into that zone, and we know this from neuroscience, that frontal lobe gets kind of shut off, and you go back into your limbic system, you go back into those lizard brain structures, and you are in the zone of pure creation. You forget the outside world, and then you realize, no, this is good, there's something here, and then you engage the rest of the brain, and now you start working, going from art to craft, and now you start making something. Wow, that's fascinating. The whole book is fascinating. Thank you. The book is called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Susan Rogers, who is a PhD in cognitive neuroscience at Berkeley College of Music, is the author and co-author with Ogie Ogis. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. This was really, really fun. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with people about music, but I'm glad that you're so knowledgeable about music. These questions were great. And so we end today's show. It was produced by Corey Wara, who is the assistant producer. And let's get an assist from Daft Punk, who will tell us if the staff is indeed human or robot. So, assistant producer Corey Wara. All right. I thought so. I thought so. Very convincing, but I thought so. Joel Patterson, senior producer. Ah, explains a lot of things. And COO of Peachfish Productions, Michelle Pesca. Yup, she just brings, you know, there's just a truth, just a resoluteness to her. Now I understand why. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's Advertise Cast, which is a something of a automated online advertising system. Maybe we get a judgment on those guys. Okay. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oom Peru, G Peru, do Peru. And thanks for listening.